You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Continue our series today in the book of uh, Acts. And we're going to spend some time in Acts chapter 6. We are uh, making progress. Uh, we're going to be today seeing the text between verses 1 through 7. <coughs> and um, a, a little bit of a context. The church is already growing. The apostles come from a supernatural experience that we uh, reviewed a couple weeks ago. Uh, they were incarcerated, then they're released by an angel, then they're go they are uh, tried, and then this new person that comes to, to the story, Gamaliel, who is a, a sort of like an introduction to what Paul is going to do, uh, stands up and gives advice to, to the council, the Sanhedrin, and, and he tells them, don't do anything, let them die. If this is from God, it will prosper. If it's not from God, it will just die down, as all the other ones have. Uh, so, they are threatened, they're told not to preach again, then they're beaten. This is the first time we see physical punishment inflicted on the church. And instead of them shying away or stop preaching the gospel, they leave rejoicing because they were, uh, wor they were counted worthy of uh, being beaten by the name of because of the name of Jesus. And they immediately go back <laughs> to preaching and teaching. And this is in interesting, from house to house and in the temple every day. So I don't think that whatever the leaders were doing was working. It was actually having the opposite effect. So this is the context of what we read before. And today, our story moves on and is, uh, starts at a new setting. And we take on chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And it says, Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve the tables. Therefore, brothers, speak out from you among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom, we'll, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a, ma a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they said before the apostles, <coughs> and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. If you have been a believer, you've probably already heard this passage or read this passage many times. It is a pretty well-known text, <coughs> and it can be taken, and I've actually heard it preached in many different ways. And uh, some of the topics related to this text that you probably heard are about church structures, like elders and deacons, uh, or maybe there are each re the responsibilities of each one, uh, 
Some people have taken the route of talking about ethnic conflict or cultural tensions in the, in the early church. And th there's many ways we can, we can take this. Um, and as I develop in my preaching, um, preaching for me is mostly what not to say instead of what to say. There's every passage of scripture can be developed into each word or each phrase. So uh, I will probably not cover absolutely everything. But I believe that the main point in this text is to highlight the importance of two topics that have divided the church for a long time, but especially in the last few years. One of them is the importance of the word of God, uh, the importance of doctrine, the importance of the preached word of God, uh, the gospel as a message, as a verbalized message. And the other uh, topic the second one would be the, the importance of, <coughs> of the gospel, not only as a message, but as a way of life, uh, a, a message that moves you to action uh, about mercy, justice, uh, about the social responsibility of the church. And this division, uh, and these two topics actually have created some division lately, uh, specifically in the last few years and the past few elections, with the rise of racial tensions, issues of justice on one side, and maybe the growth of gospel-centered ministries and doctor-centered movements uh, have clashed. And if you're up to date with what's happening in the Christian world, which I hope you're not, um, this is not always nice. They uh, blame each other of heretics or um, just futile faith. And some people would say... Um, you know what? The church's responsibility is to preach the gospel. I've actually heard this message preached like this. The church should only focus on preaching the word, on prayer, on gathering on Sundays, on worship. And that's what should be our main and almost sometimes only focus. Uh, some of them refer to this complaining per people as immature Christians who don't get it because they just want to action and the church is not a nonprofit. And to one, uh, in, in part, I would say yes to that. Uh, their, their motto sometimes is, let's preach the gospel, or let's preach the word, and everything else will follow. And on the other side, <coughs> you have another camp that would probably say, no, let's all go into the world and do or be Jesus to people and use the resources of the church to bless the needy, we need to show compassion and mercy to people. The gospel is love, and we need to stop everything we're doing, and we should all go and get involved and go into the world and the poor places. And it's not just about doctrine or theories, about action. Uh, so these are the people that we use, use that quote that it's uh, attributed to uh, Francis of Assis that says, let's preach the gospel and if needed, use words. So. I believe that Luke is sort of getting into this or giving us a, a picture of the necessity of both. And I call this holistic ministry, doing both. And some people have called it other names, um, integral mission, and um, that's what I want to talk about. And I, my, my basic premise is that we don't need to choose sides. Uh, I have a friend uh, in Mexico City, and he, he said, it's almost like fighting between whether you need to eat or go to the gym. And it's a dumb question, 
you need to do both. Whether you do one first and then the other, but you need to do both. So how do we see this outlined in the text? Number one is that we see that the church continued to grow. And this is something we all want to see. In fact, most churches that I know want to grow, right? But sometimes we forget that growth brings or produces problems. Uh, if you read verse 1, it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. So by some people's calculations, at this point in time in uh, chapter 6 of Acts, the church is probably way past the 10,000 people mark. If you do some basic math, initially there were 3,000 men that were converted, then 5,000 more were converted in just between chapter 1 and chapter 3. And this is sometimes not, not including women and children. And uh, we kind of see that Luke lost count because we don't see more of these numbers coming after this. It's just like, oh, they increased in numbers. And if you look at the last, uh, the last uh, tech, uh, verse, it says they greatly increased. So Luke lost count, but by some calculations, this is a mega church in Jerusalem. Now, they were, th th they were not doing what we typically do, uh, all gathered in one place. For Many people say there was probably about 100, 120 house churches happening around Jerusalem, not only in the city, but around too. So the church is facing growth. It's facing uh, challenges because it's growing. It's bothering the leadership. Uh, and now... The, uh, Satan is not being able to get them from the outside. Uh, the, the leadership is trying to uh, push or kill this movement, and they can't. So the devil now switches to this new strategy of if you can't get him from the outside, let's get him from the inside. So they begin with, like any church, with conflict. And usually starts with people complaining. Other translations use the word murmuring. So there's gossip in the church, and there's discrimination in the church. And that's what happens when churches grow. So if you're praying for us to grow, keep doing it. We need to. That's our call. But just keep in mind that you're asking for more problems. Nobody told me this when I started having kids. <coughs> but I should... And they're beautiful. My son is here. So I have to say that. But it's true. The more the, the, more, the, more the people, the more the problems. Is that how you say it? Anyway. Um, so the problem here is there is discrimination. And I, I think sometimes this, this idea of the Hellenist and the Hebrews uh, is not well understood, specifically in, in America, who is a, a very diverse country in nature. And let me, let me explain why. Before I do that, let me, let me just explain what this Hebrew and Hellenist Jews means and the problem between them. Uh, the Faith, uh, study book, faith Life study, study Bible defines this or defines it like this. The Greek-speaking Jews refers to ethnic Jews who practice Judaism and largely, largely adopted Greek language and culture. They may have lived most of their lives outside of Judea. The Hebraic, Hebraic Jews refer to the Jews or Jews who have not widely adopted Greek language or culture. And for the most part, we're people who were born and raised in either Jerusalem or Judea, right? So the Hebrew Jews 
typically looked down on the Hellenistic Jews. And as an American, I haven't seen examples of that in this country so much. But let me tell you that I, I have a PhD in this. And I can explain to you because this is something I've experienced and on both sides now. Uh, because I was born in Mexico, and this happens probably for most of us who have been born or lived outside as well. Mexicans that are from Mexico, that were born and raised in Mexico is one thing. Mexicans who were born and raised anywhere else, but specifically in America, are a complete different category. And if you're from a different country, that's probably the same case for you. I don't know, Bolivia, El Salvador, you can tell me. But we actually, the Mexicans that are the true Mexicans, look down on the so-called Mexicans. We actually have uh, names for them. We call them pochos or chicanos. I don't know if you've, you've heard of this term. But that's a, that's a very uh, derogative way of saying uh, you, you're just kind of like a wannabe Mexican or a Mexican wannabe. This, I, I don't know if you understand this because for you, maybe we're all Mexican, and that's, <laughs> that's in a way true. But that creates a problem because the people that are like the pochos or the chicanos for in the Mexican way of looking at things, they're, they're basically homeless. They, when they go back to visit, and I remember because I used to have family, my, like half of my family lives in, Chica in Chicago, and I haven't met them well. Uh, you would look at them, and they wouldn't act like you. They wouldn't eat like you. They wouldn't talk like you. They wouldn't dress like you. They wouldn't play soccer like you. Uh, it, it was just weird, right? But then they, they, they call themselves Mexicans because when they were on this side, they were Mexican. People would look at them, and they're like, oh, you're a Mexican. Yeah, oh, you dress like Mexican. You eat Mexican. You like spicy food. Like, they were Mexicans for the other people. So it created this homeless, this, this idea of, like, I'm not, I don't have a house, a, house, a home, a place. So they, they struggle with their identity. And I know that this happens in other places. And I feel like this is exactly what was happening. There, there were the Jews that were the real Jews. And then there were the, all the other Jews that were born somewhere else. And their language wasn't no long, was no longer uh, Aramaic or Hebrew. Was, it was now Greek because they were born in other places. And I've grown, and God has humbled me, because I was one of those discriminating Mexicans against Mexicans. And now, God gave me a family of pochos <laughs> and Chicanos. And I married one Salvadorian. They don't call him pochos, right? Um, that was born here. And I, I've, I've seen how it feels. And, and in a way, it's just really dumb, but that's what humans do. Our sinful nature always tries to find just like the smallest way to feel better than others so that you can feel justified or that you can feel better about yourself. And we just cling to that, and then we make fun of other people, right? It's going to happen today at the football party. <laughs> but that's human nature. And that's what Satan was using. He began by placing, you know, pride in people's hearts. And now the, the Hebrews were giving maybe a little, a, an extra scoop to the Hebrew widows. 
and uh, the Hellenistic had a weir weird accent, and maybe they were like, okay, well, this is what they told us, so I'll just give you, giving you two. Uh, something was happening. We, we're not told exactly what was happening, but Satan used this to bring division in the church. And the reason why the church was uh, feeding the, 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 the widows is because in, in, in the Jewish culture, they took seriously a command that God gives repeatedly in the Old Testament to, to Israel to care for orphans. And, and every time you hear this command, it's not a nice command or it never comes in a very nice, loving way. It's always very harsh how God calls Israel to care for the poor and the orphans. And the first time we see this is in Exodus 22, right after the, the law has been given, uh, and it says, or while the law has been given, sorry, and it says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. See, they were doing the same. They were like, how dare do you discriminate a foreigner when you were a foreigner? You know how it feels to be discriminated against, and now you're doing the same. And Jesus, God is telling them, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child or orphan. And this is the harsh part. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. I'm not going to, there's plenty of those with uh, the, that same tone throughout scripture. And if you read Isaiah, and if you read Jeremiah, and if you read Ezekiel, this is a constant thing that God was telling the people of Israel. Be careful how you treat the needy. So they took, they, they took this seriously. And what happened is many scholars agree that the people who were becoming Christians were probably losing that benefit because they were now pledging allegiance to Jesus and the temple or the leaders or society was no longer being so nice to them. So the church took on this uh, command and they were now uh, caring for the widow and the poor and the orphans. And so there was a daily distribution. So Satan attacks the church from within, creates division using pride, using ethnic identities, uh, causing discrimination against each other in the church. And uh, the minority affected, the, the Hellenists, complained. So how did they address this? I want to make sure that we see that the church, the whole church, addressed this problem. Because this is something that we can learn. The whole church, all of us, must face and address our problems. Look at what they do. They, they, they don't wait they don't, like, make a meeting amongst the apostles. They summon the full number of the disciples. And then they say, it's, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve the tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The church addresses it. It doesn't allow it to fester and grow. They get together. They call a meeting. And this is risky. If you've been a Christian for long enough, you know that church meetings, when there's conflict, are not fun. And I think that one of the lessons that we can learn as a church is that 
especially for the leadership of a church, is that we don't like to deal with complaints. Sometimes we just don't like it. And I don't think anybody likes it, right? From our children to your job or anywhere. Nobody likes to deal with complaints. But this is not how the apostles react. They don't put it off. They don't ignore it. They go for it. And they, inv they involve the whole church. This is another sign of humility. The leadership of a church addresses it, and they go to the whole church, and they act on it. How do they address it? What is it that they do? They basically come up with this idea of restructuring the church and restructuring the leadership. So they establish what other people call another layer of leadership, which is called the deacons. And for the first time, since the church was born, we see that there is a formal approach to some kind of leadership. Up until this point, we're told that the apostles did this, and the apostles go to jail, and the apostles were doing this, and healing, and, and going up and down. And this is the first time that we see that there is an official appointment of other people with a specific uh, responsibility. So they, in a way, give us the base of what now we know, and Paul later defines as elders and deacons. Even though the name of deacon is not explicit here, this is what I believe Paul was referring to. Paul, after he converted, and we will see this later, he goes back to Jerusalem. Nobody wants to meet with him, and, and then he finally meets with the disciples. So I'm pretty sure this is something he learned from them. And then he later uh, tells Timothy how to do this. In fact, this is how we function here. And if you have read 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see a detailed account of what elders do and what they're supposed to be, and then deacons. Let me just quickly read it to you. And if you're an elder here, or if you're a deacon here, I want you to, place, uh, I want you to pay spe uh, special attention to this. 1 Timothy 3 says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And then he moves on to deacons. Likewise, uh, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then uh, let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, like, likewise, must be dignified. This is why we allow uh, women to be, uh, or we believe that women can be deacons, is because verse 11 actually implies the women and the wives of, of the deacons. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one, wives, of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve as uh, well as deacons gain a good standing, for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So we see 
If you notice, there's similar tones in Paul that we just saw from the apostles. There's an emphasis on character. They say people of good reputation. That's one of the criteria that people were supposed to uh, fulfill if they were going to serve the tables. They must have a good reputation. They must be full of the Holy Spirit or saved. And they must be wise. They must be people of wisdom. And then Paul later gives us more detail about it. People that are able to teach and all those things. So they add a new category. The church adapts and the church, as it grows, responds to the conflict by adapting and creating structures of leadership that will serve everyone well. And they choose seven men. Two of them are probably the most famous. One of them is Stephen, which we'll talk about at the end of this chapter and the next one. We know he gets killed. He's the first martyr. And then Philip, who will later uh, find preaching to a, an um, Ethiopian eunuch. And uh, they did not only serve the church or the tables. They were also people that preached the word of God. An interesting fact that many scholars point out is that the names of the seven men that were chosen were Hellenistic names. Which shows the sensitivity of the church towards the people who brought the complaint and who were being discriminated against. So in my Mexican terms, most of the guys that were chosen were pochos. Any other names for that? Is Mexicans the only one who do that? Bolivia, do they have a term? No? El Salvador? No? Boligringos? <laughs> okay. Anyway. So why do the apostles do this? It wasn't that the apostles saw that serving the tables was below them because they were, uh, they actually, it's the opposite. They saw it as something of high importance. So they uh, could no longer do it well because of the size of the church. So the apostles decide to add another layer and supply the need or meet the need by choosing these people. But they say something important. They chose the best option because they realize that they needed to focus on the word of God. And this is a typical teaching of this passage. Elders must be people that focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. And that is absolutely true. Specifically in this case, the 12 were the ones that had the direct teaching from Jesus. They were directly taught by, by Jesus. So they, they had the counsel of Jesus. They, they were given direction directly by Jesus. So they were responsible for taking that to the church. It's not that they didn't want to serve the widows. It's because they realized that they could split responsibilities. They didn't want to negate one for the sake of the other. No, they wanted to do both well. They didn't need to compromise. They wanted to do both of those things well. The spiritual nourishment and care of the people inside and outside of the church was a priority, but also the, uh, the physical and tangible needs of the people inside and out of the church was also a priority. But one of the key elements that I want to highlight today is that this involved the whole church. They were only able to do this by the contribution and involvement of the whole church. 
Did you notice who is the uh, who were the people who found, evaluated, and presented this man? It was the church. The apostles went to the church and said, "You choose them. You evaluate them. This is the criteria." Bring them back once you find them. And that's exactly what the church did. This wasn't the apostles only doing all the work. It was that the whole church contributed to the solution, contributed to this restructuring, and they evaluated, found, and chose the seven men. Because we all have a part to play in God's work. And I feel like I'm preaching to the choir in a, in a way because I look around and all of you are serving in some capacity. And I love that. I love that us as a church understand that we're all part of one functioning body. Some of us are the head, maybe, like the elders. Some of us are the hands and the feet, maybe like the deacons. The church is full of eyes and ears and noses and hearts and brains. That's fine. But believe it or not, there are also appendix brothers and sisters. This is a joke I stole from my friend in Mexico. And why I call them, or they are called appendix brothers and sisters, because nobody knows why they're here <laughs> or what they do. But if they become inflamed or irritated, they will explode and cause a lot of damage. <laughs> so don't be an appendix brother or sister. I have to give credit. That was not my joke. It was by a guy named Nathan Diaz from Mexico, and I, he's, it was made, me, made me laugh, too. <laughs> so the, the apostles take action because everyone jumps in. They, had, they address the complaint. They restructure. They delegate. Uh, the whole church uh, contributes and joins in the solution. So the apostles are not basically washing their hands by just saying, oh, now you, now you do those things that are not important. No, they actually took the time to address those issues that are important. So the apostles took the role of elders, and then the rest were deacons, the seven men. So what does this section teach us today? What we see the apostles doing is that they don't take sides. They're flexible and they um, move and adapt to the circumstances and they don't take sides. They don't have to be fighting between which one they need to do. They can do both. They can do holistic ministry or integral mission. They can prior prioritize both and this is what I think it's an important thing that we understand. Let me just be really honest. One of the reasons why this was a division that was just made even worse in the last years is because we live in a polarized society. We live in a country where if you are Democrat, then this is what you do and this is how you think. And if you're a Republican, this is what you do, and this is how you think. And everything became a political issue. And then 
with all the people that were on the Republican side, uh, they immediately said, well, if I'm a Christian, then I should go on this side. If I'm not a Christian, I should go on this side. And if I care about immigration or if I care about all the things, then uh, racial tensions, then I automatically become a, a Democrat. If, I, if I'm against abortion, if I'm a pro-marriage, uh, then like you understand what I'm saying. That's why there's so much division in our country. And that went into the church and caused division. And if I remember correctly, I've heard stories from a few years ago, and this is exactly what happened in New City as well. Well, we need to understand this because guess what? It's looping around. We're coming into 2024, a year of elections. And guess what? It's probably going to happen again. So we need to understand that as a church, we don't need to take sides. Our allegiance is not to a political party or to any person. Our main allegiance is to Jesus. Whatever the, Je the Bible says, that's what we're going to fight for. That's what we're going to do. We don't need to choose between abortion and, and, and racial tensions. We don't need to choose between caring for the poor and the needy and the sojourner and, and fighting for marriage. We don't need to choose between. We do all because that's what the Bible says. That's what the apostles did. They adapted to the situation. They could have said, well, we're Jewish. I mean, we're all from Galilee, and Jesus chose us, so there must be something about that. So you Hellenists, go figure it out. They didn't do that. They adapted, and they didn't have to fight or choose between the two. And this is not a concept from liberal theology. We're not becoming woke. This is Christian theology. This is truly what sound doctrine is. Sound doctrine is not a, a, a concept that it's in your brain. It's something that moves you to action in light of the whole scope of Scripture. Sound doctrine is, is doctrine that does not remain passively as a concept. This is also not Latin American theology that Jews trying to like sneak into the no. This is in fact one of the the the, the, the most uh, crucial theologies from thousands of years. So Saint Augustine, I, people say there's probably not another inf most influential theologian and philosopher from uh, in church history. He wrote a treatise on church doctrine about 1,600 uh, years ago. And Justo Gonzalez comments on this and summarizes his writings, about specifically in the topic of, of, of this uh, topic we're talking about. And he says, Augustine insist insisted that the leaders of the church should not use more than is necessary, and everything that is left should be utilized to relieve the needy which leads us to the enjoyment of God. In every case, he insisted that the majority of church's income should be employed in helping the widow and the poor, and the life of the clergy should be moderate. This is a writing, and you can, you can dive a little bit. Uh, uh, his treatise on church doctrine is four, four tomes, and he addresses all kinds of issues. And one of the issues he addresses is precisely this. What is the responsibility of the church towards the needy? But it's not just Augustine, who was an African person from uh, thousands of years ago. This is also the, the theology of a well-known theologian, Charles Spurgeon. And he says this in one of his sermons about uh, Christ's words uh, from the cross. 
Churches are not made that men of ready speech may stand up on Sundays and talk. And so win daily bread for their admirers. Admirers. No, there is another end and aims to this. These places of worship are not built that you may sit comfortably and hear something that shall make you pass away your Sundays with pleasure. A church which does not exist to do good in the slums and dens and kennels of the city is a church that has no reason to justify its longer exist existing. A church that does not exist to reclaim heathenism, to fight with evil, to destroy error, to put down falsehood. A church that does not exist to take the side of the poor, to denounce injustice, and to hold up righteousness is a church that has no right to be. Not for yourself, O church, do you exist. Any more than Christ exalted for himself, his glory was that he laid aside his glory. And the glory of the church is when she lays aside her respectability and her dignity and counts it to be her glory to gather together the outcast and her highest honor to seek amid the foulest mire the priceless jewels for which Jesus shed his blood to rescue souls from hell and to lead to God, to hope, to heaven. This is heavenly, her heavenly occupation. Oh, that the church would always be like this. As a church that is heading into 2024, and we're going to see a repeat of everything that we saw, instead of choosing sides, we need to organize ourselves, be flexible, get together, talk, and address both issues. We don't need to choose sides. And that is the power of holistic ministry. And that's what, it destroyed the church. When, the, when somebody took sides, it destroyed the church. Listen to what happened with this kind of ministry. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is not new. Since the beginning, the, 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 the Holy Spirit falls in chapter 2. And yeah, they preach the gospel to everyone. But the end of chapter 2, we see a new community of people sharing everything. And then it happens again. People are being converted, and at the same time, people are being healed, and the needs of people are being met. They never chose any sides. Christianity is not about repentance only. It's not about your spiritual soul. It's about you, too. It's about you as a human being. The idea of humans with flesh and bones, with emotions, with needs to eat, with needs to have relationships was God's idea. The person who created you that way was God. He gave us emotions for us to forget it and only be driven by facts. No. He gave us emotions because he has a purpose for emotions. He also gave us a brain, and he also gave us his, his word, and he also gave us doctrine. He gave us everything. He made us relational. He also made us logical. He made us needy, but he also made us with gifts and talents. This is a God that we serve. We don't need to take sides. This holistic ministry that the early church in Jerusalem uh, practiced, uh, the integral mission, as some called it, was powerful, very powerful. And we see that the church blew up. 
And there's nothing new in the first part of, this, of verse 7 except the last part. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I don't think we have a way to understand that phrase. But the people that were sitting while Jesus was being tried, some of them, the people that were sitting while the apostles were being tried, the people who said kill them, beat them, the people who constantly argue with Jesus and the apostles, the people who saw everything, they ran out of arguments against this new kind of faith. They got to the point where they saw people living out the court rejoicing after being beaten and then go back to preaching and giving money to people, selling their possessions and healing the needy, that their mouths were shut. They had nothing else to say, nor theologically, nor practically. The priests were becoming Christian. Why? Because they were not taking sides. Because it wasn't just a competition on theology against the Pharisees or the Sadducees. It was more than that. It was the power of the gospel proclaimed and the power of the gospel lived. And the great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Not just one, not two, many This new faith was impressive. Their message was powerful. Their way of life was powerful. This faith continues today, and it continues to be powerful. And let me tell you, it will be a powerful witness for America in this year of elections. Living a life of word, of deep prayer, fast, listen to your podcast, do whatever you do in the morning. Pray. Do spiritual formation or disciplines, whatever you want to call it. But don't forget the other part. Live your gospel life with others. Love others. Show mercy. In, get involved in people's life. That is holistic ministry. And it is powerful. It is appealing to a needy and divided world. The reality is as a Christian, as, a, as Christians, we sometimes feel bad. And I hear this often. You know, it's been a while since I read the Bible. It's, yeah, I struggled with, pre, uh, with uh, praying and I haven't really fasted in 20 years and uh, things like that, right? We haven't been in the Word. We haven't really listened to music um, or worship and all those things. I barely, rarely ever hear it. I have not witnessed to anyone. I have not even gotten to know my neighbor. I have not even fed someone. In the I, I've barely ever heard hear these things. It's almost as if one of them is more important than the other. As if Christianity is just about you and God. And that is the American problem. The individualism. It's about me. It's about my faith. Am I growing? How many, how many books I read? How many, how many things I did for Jesus today? in the church with my brothers and sisters? Did I attend community group? Did I attend church? It, that's our measure. It is not our only measure. It's both. Let's continue worshiping, fasting, praying, getting on our knees. Have your quiet time. Read the, the books and the podcast. 
But let's equally be attentive for the cares of the needy around us. Let's give to the poor. Let's care for the widow. Let's uh, seek out the foreigner. Let's, let's always witness with the people that need it. I believe this, that's the power of a holistic ministry or a church that practices holistic ministry. And I believe this is us. And I believe that this is what we can do. This is what we're trying to do. And it's not going to come from me. It has to come from you too. And I love it. We're doing the PEP on, uh, on Baldwin here. We're trying to help with childcare on this side, on the other side. And that's one way we can, we can find ways to bless our, our, our community. We're now getting involved with Project Belong. That wasn't my idea. I think it was Caitlin or Sarah's. And now Jessica's involved. And, 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 and uh, people ha- are helping us. Let's get involved. Now uh, we're giving towards uh, Franco's fund. And we gave towards Francisca's fund. And now Angel has been called to, to, to visit the juvenile detention center. Like, that's what we need to be doing, too. Let's get involved in these things. It's not going to, if you're waiting for the leadership of the church to tell you what to do, it's not going to happen. This is all us. We want to be helping you. You have specific callings and specific ways of developing relationships and access to places that I don't have access to. Let's pursue those. Let's be the church as we continue to like be in prayer and the word. Let's also get involved with others who need Jesus, not only in spiritual ways, but also in real tangible ways. I have not forgotten the gospel. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. We don't have a God sitting on a throne giving us a sermon every day. That's not the God we have. We don't have a God who came to the earth, like sat on top of the biggest mountain and yelled to the whole world, come to me, sinners, repent and make your way up to me because otherwise you're going to go to hell. That's not the guy we have. That's not the kind of God we serve. And that is the difference with Christianity and all the other religions. Is that the other religions gives, uh, gives you the steps on how to reach the goal. But in Christianity, the God who tells you what the goal is and has a solution came and went and grabbed you and pulled you out and is carrying you all the way to the top of the mountain by his strength and his power. And all you get to do is look around and say, wow, I don't even know why he's doing it. I don't deserve this, but thank you because I would never, ever do this by myself. We don't have a God who just stays from far away and tells you what to do or gives you a sermon. No, we have a God who came to this earth, the slum. He lived amongst us. He cares about your needs. He wants to heal you. He cares that you lost your job. He cares that you're sick. He cares that your child cannot sleep. He cares that your child is rebelling. He cares that you're having problems with your, with your spouse. He cares about, about all these things. And that is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus forgives you his sins. That's one part of it. It's that now you have a dad. You have a good father who loves you, who gave his life for you, who died for you. That we are so loved in every way, beyond our wildest dreams, and we don't deserve it. And That's what we should do to others. So if you're a believer, you can walk in this freedom. You have a dad who loves you tangibly. 
Yes, he, there's doctrine that we need to learn, and you should sign up to that workshop. Yes. But he also cares about your daily life and your kids' lives and your stuff and your emotions. And if you're not a believer, this God who cares about you is available. It's, it's, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to earn it. God already did it. All you have to do is believe it and now turn back to him and run to him and let him hug you and carry you and take you back to your place forever. We rest on the work, on the finished work on Jesus Christ on the, on the cross. We don't rest in our works. Let's stand up and thank Jesus together. Dear Father, we honor you. We thank you because you are a God who loves us. You are a God who... Um, not only say that you love us, you have proven it with your life. And we honor you, we love you, we, we thank you. And I, Lord, I pray that out of this love and compassion and mercy and grace that we have received, we would go out into the world and, and, and not only preach the good news and, and, and teach the Bible and pray for people, but that we, we would also take the step of action and and care for tangible needs and, and embrace the outcast and, and, and bless the needy and care for the widow and the orphan. Thank you, Jesus. I pray that our church would be as powerful as the early church because we don't choose sides. And I want to take this opportunity, Lord, to pray for our church as we head into this year of elections and as we already see tensions beginning to rise, I pray that as a church, we would choose you, we would choose the Bible, we would uh, choose uh, to be uh, followers of Jesus, even if that means that we're going to be homeless politically or socially. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. And each week... Therefore, and make...